Welcome to Export Stories, a podcast featuring first-person insights from the wide and sometimes crazy world of U.S. exporting. Your host for Export Stories is Betsy Olam, president of Olam International, a U.S.-based export management company. Betsy has made a 37-year career of developing global sales and distribution for U.S. companies. Like you, she loves great stories. You don't have to be an exporter to enjoy the stories we're going to share with you each month. We're so glad you've joined us. Now, here is Betsy to introduce today's podcast. Hello, bonjour, hola, konnichiwa, nihao, marhaben, and shalom. Welcome to Export Stories. I'm your host, Betsy Olam, and we have a very special podcast for you today. Thank you for joining us and listening. Uh, Today, we are joined by Greg Miller, Senior Editor for Freight Waves and American Shipper. Hi, Greg. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Betsy. Thanks for having me. There's just a so much to talk about now in shipping and shipping journalism. So uh, it's great to be here. Exactly, exactly. And uh, as you suggested, we're going to talk about maritime journalism in the time of COVID and then and what the future is and, and, and so many things to talk about. I thought um, to begin with, you have a lot of great stories about from your background about how you arrived at freight waves and American shippers. So why don't we talk just a minute about your background and kind of where you got started all the way back from your college education, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Um, I, I graduated from Cornell uh, in upstate New York, very cold, very gray. Uh, and I think I needed to escape from that. Uh, so they always say, if you want to be a journalist, go to a small town, learn how to do it there. So I picked a small town, but I went to a small town in the Caribbean, uh, uh, the island of St. Thomas. And I worked for a company called the Virgin Islands Business Journal. Uh, I was there for five years and I'm dating myself, but this was really old school printing. Back then, you actually had to print the stories out, cut out the page, put it on a larger page with glue. And if, uh, uh, if you had a typo, you actually had to take an X-Acto blade, cut out the offending word, and replace it. Uh, I don't think people appreciate yeah. uh, what what we have today with uh, technology. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> I know. And uh, you know, I was there until Hurricane Marilyn, you know, pretty much wiped out the island in '95. Uh, don't ask me why, but I found myself riding out that storm uh, on a, in a wooden house on a hill overlooking Hull Bay on the north side of the island, barely made it out alive. Um, but that was yeah. it for me in St. Thomas. Uh, and after <laughs> that, I was off to New York. I bet, I imagine if surviving something like that has to contribute to your experience, your, you know, your Absolutely. writing and that sort of thing. Absolutely. It was, it was quite an event. Um, and then traveling, you know, going from St. Thomas in the tropics right into Manhattan. Oh my gosh. And I, it was such a it was such a transition. I tell you, it was like almost like traveling into the future. When I left, uh, you know, people weren't using cell phones. I came back, everyone had a cell phone. Uh, there was uh, touchscreen ATMs. They didn't have them when I left. Uh, so it was it was quite a shock. Uh, but I used the knowledge that I learned in cruise in, in uh, St. Thomas to get a job at a company called Cruise Industry News. Uh, was there for seven years, and I spent a lot of time out on the ocean on the ships. Uh, not just in the bar, uh, 
but also in the engine room, you know, talking to the chief engineers, uh, going to the shipyards around the world, to France, Germany, Italy. So it was a great experience. Uh, it was a huge time for the cruise industry. Yeah. Uh, they, they were just getting big on Wall Street, growing their, you know, you see these big ships. This was the time when they were building it, consolidating. It was, it was quite, quite an industry at that time. Right. I, I, don't, I don't know how to explain it, but when you actually tour a ship, uh, especially for the first time, there's something just so impressive about, about being <laughs> on a vessel that's out that in the big. sea and it's just, it's, yeah, it's, it's something. It works. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's something. It's something. And then, you know, from a journalism point of view, the great thing was that uh, when I was on St. Thomas, I had the perspective of a small town. It was sort of like the big bad cruise lines taking advantage of these poor local retailers. And now I was at this job and I saw the cruise industry from the industry's perspective, you know, making money from shareholders. And I think I'll come back to this again and again, but it's very important for a business journalist to get these different perspectives, it's sort of like the import-export business, which you would know. Yeah. Uh, you know, you have the carrier point of view and the shipper point of view. I imagine it's very different. Right. Very di Well, your interests, your, your uh, profit motives and other interests are different. Yeah, I mean, yeah. they're aligned, but they're different. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so after that, uh, I, uh, after Cruise Industry News, I went to a company called Fairplay, which people in shipping would know. It's an old school British publication been around since, or it was, been, it was around since 1883, and, and it covered not just crews, but tankers, bulkers, and, and container ships, which is, uh, you know, what the import-export business is all about. Uh, and I was there for 14 years, between th 2004 and 2018. Fairplay was brought by a large conglomerate called IHS in 2008, 2009, uh, and it was shut down, unfortunately, by IHS uh, in, in December 2018 after being printed uh, as, a, as a journal and a magazine for 135 years. And oh, so it was, wow. it, was, it was a sad day. It was a yeah. sad day. And uh, this is a theme that will come up again. But to see this print publication, uh, you know, finally closed down. Uh, what was it like to be with, when you were there at Fair Play, what was it like to work for such an old name, vener as you say, venerable magazine? What was the ambiance like what were what were the people like there i'd be very curious well it was it was very very british uh which is very <laughs> very different yeah. from an Amer from an american publication yeah and it was also uh, the name you know when you work for a public like publication like that the name opens the door so you can speak to the ceos of these big companies because they grew up with that publication and they read that publication when they were in university. Uh, so it was a great experience. Uh, and, and also I would say, uh, again, to go back to the different perspective, IS, IHS was this giant corporation and mm -hmm. it was very impressive, uh, and, but it was one of those classic corporations with all that entails. I mean, if you think about a Dilbert cartoon and these giant, you know, giant rooms full of cubicles. Uh, so, Again, with the different perspectives, I had been, Was it all media? Was IHS all media? It, or? Uh, it was media, but it was a lot of data and it was a lot of analysis. So it was oh. a big conglomerate that mm -hmm. owned a lot of different things. And I just think it's very important as a business journalist, if you're going to be covering businesses, to. it's great to have worked for a small business as well as 
as a as one of these giant businesses because it's it's like different planets these big business these oh, big yeah. corporations and the small businesses. Oh, yeah. uh, but it was it was it, you know it was it was rough to say goodbye to that. Uh, and after Fair Play, I spent a few months uh, doing freelance, working for a lot of uh, other maritime publications. And this was also really important because for my entire career, I had been the editor hiring freelancers, hiring writers, getting them paid, assigning them. And here I was now, I was that freelancer. I was that writer that was giving you the 500 words and I was trying to get paid. And it's a very, it's very different side uh, to be on, you know, as opposed to the editor and the writer. I so would I'm, say, so, I would say that, and I mean, right, but I would say I one, one thing that's important for that kind of experience is that you know you can do it. I mean, nowadays everybody changes jobs yeah. once, twice, three, four times. When when it happens, you know, you know, I can do this. I can be independent. I can work for a big company. It's really great to know that you can be flexible like that and you can survive in all these different ways, even as an independent contractor or whatever. Absolutely, absolutely. No, that was a great experience. So April 2019, uh, sort of to get to the current era here, uh, I joined a company called Freight Waves, which very importantly is, is digital only. Uh, it's not in the magazine business. And then Freight Waves purchased the, you know, the publication that you know and love, Yes. American Shipper in, in July 2009, 2019. Uh, and so that's how I got here. And, you know, it, sort of building on everything I've done before, you know, it's, it's not just about the ocean. It's about all freight transported in all modes, whether it's mm -hmm. trucking or rail or air, uh, a lot of trucking. So it's, again, been a great experience. And uh, did you, did you have a lot to learn, did you feel like, when you, you got you there? Always, you always have a lot to learn, uh, even yeah. in shipping, you know, uh, I'll, yeah. there's, there was, there's an analyst, I won't say his name, but he would always get on these panels and say, there's nothing complicated about this, it's just, it's easy, it's just shipping. And, you know, I would laugh at that because it, it's very, very complicated. Uh, yeah. And that's great as a journalist, you don't want to be a journalist covering a topic which is very simple because it gets very boring, but there's something about, I, you know, I consider myself an expert on writing and editing, but although I wouldn't be able to tell you what the rules are, but uh, when it comes to shipping, I think I learn something new every, every week, every month. Yeah. And that's good because that, that keeps it interesting. Um, well, I think people found out when we first shut down with COVID that how integral, uh, the logistics and shipping business is it, it was, I mean, you just can live without it. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think if you think about the way that the world is set up today, logistics and shipping is central to it. I mean, you, I mean, what are the most important industries right now? Healthcare, technology, and probably logistics. And so mm -hmm. this sort of brings up, you know, the, the main thrust of what I want to talk about is what's going on in shipping journalism right now. Sure. And, you know, just because of all the different places I've been, I, I think I've, I'm sort of an an interesting position to, to talk about the changes that are underway. I've had a front row seat on some of these changes, which are going on now with, with COVID uh, and which right. were happening before COVID. And this is very important to people in the import-export business because this is about where you're going to get your news about what's going on in trade and shipping. And as you say, you know, now more than ever, uh, it's important. And, uh, you know, I think the first thing to say would be the delivery of your news is going to be 
different. And, you know, print, uh, whether it's a, a newspaper or magazine for the trade press, for the shipping press, you know, uh, I think it's effectively dead. And, and I, I say this with a huge amount of dismay because I love print. Uh, you know, this is just audio, but uh, if, if this was video, yeah. you could see my apartment is full of books. I have shelves I, see, I can see that, yes. I have shelves everywhere. My wife keeps yelling at me, you know, get a Kindle, get a Kindle. I, I, <laughs> I refuse to get a Kindle. I, yeah. I love books. Me I still too. read the Sunday Times. I read The Economist. Mm-hmm. All those Virgin Islands business journals and the cruise industry news and the Fair Play magazines, uh, you know, much to my wife's chagrin, are sitting here on shelves in, in the apartment. <laughs> um, but even so, uh, I think that even before COVID, if you think about it, Lloyd's List was probably the most famous shipping newspaper. It had been around for about 280 years. Oh, sure. It went digital back in 2013, so years ago. Uh, Fair Play, as I said, was shut down in December 2018, and American Shipper, the the print publication of American Shipper was also the last publication, was December uh, 2018. And so COVID is really accelerating the trends that are already away. And and this is not just about print, and I'm sorry, about journalism. Think about retail, think about your business. Yeah. Sort of the Amazonification of retail. Everything is going from the storefronts and the malls to, to e-commerce. Everything, right? I know. I know. Uh, I have a husband in, in real estate. I know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, it was happening before, but what COVID has done is pushed all these trends forward, and they're, not, they're just not going to snap back. Uh, you know, the same thing with ocean shipping and the digital platforms. Uh, everything is going towards these online platforms. Um, and so, you know, it takes so much time and effort to put a print publication together. Okay, it's not like those exacto blades I was talking about and cutting things and pasting, right? But right. it still takes a huge amount of time to make that magazine look good. You have to make the page look good. You have to make the ads look good, the pictures. It takes so much time to do that. And um, I just think that it's going to be hard for uh, these publications that are print to compete in the new world. Um, uh, you, you see right now what they're trying to do is they're trying to do these emags that are PDFs. Right. Uh, I've seen it's, those. It's just, I just think, um, I just think it's not going to work. Uh, and it's yeah. not just about the cost of the time. Think about the news now and think about what's going on in the world. Uh, y- you need to get the news now. You need to know what's going on now. Uh, especially with COVID, it's sort of like before COVID and after COVID. You, you think about the past and the news of the past, it's not as important anymore. People want to know what's going on now and they want to see what's going to change uh, what's go- and what's going to happen tomorrow. And, yeah. you know, uh, every... No, no. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, and, and I'd like to understand a little better how the, re- how the revenue stream works to keep a, a, an online journal going, uh, is it just the digital ads? Is, is, it, is the data more important? Is it both in order to survive and be profitable? Just in general, how does that work? Yeah, so, you know, before in the old school, you had the, you know, the print publications and you had your subscription revenue and you your, had your advertising revenue. And your advertising revenue is generally a lot higher uh, for shipping publications uh, when it was in print versus online. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. And cynically, I would say, uh, because uh, in, on, on a print, the advertisement was hypothetical and you couldn't tell how much, the advertiser couldn't tell how much they were value they were getting. Mm -hmm. Whereas online, you can see exactly how many people click through there, right? So right. it feels more measurable and it, it earns you a lot less money. Um, uh -huh. So what happened was, uh, you know, when things went more online, the business model changed. And the analogy I would give would be, think about the music business, uh, you know, back in the 70s and the 80s. Remember those big, the big rock albums and all the rock stars would make money from the big hit album. Right. And, and uh, they would tour around the country and do all these concerts. And the concerts were basically to support the album sales. Right. Well, okay. So now fast forward to the online music business where you had uh, downloading and streaming everything reversed. So the money uh, that uh, the musicians made was, was, from the, uh, was from the concerts. It wasn't right. from the online. And so the online basically was there to support uh, the revenue stream, which was the concerts. The analogy I would make a lot of times in uh, journalism and shipping journalism is as this, as this changed, the, uh, the publication was there to support what were effectively other revenue streams. Uh, and, and they would be either conferences. Uh, you see a lot of conferences out there, or at least you did before COVID. Right. Uh, and that's where they were getting all the money. So, okay, they still made money from the online uh, ads. And they, you know, some of them still made money from subscriptions if you had a paywall. But, you know, that real moneymaker was the conferences. And then a different group of businesses made money from data. And, and so I would put Fairplay in America, I'm sorry, Freight Waves and American Shipper into that uh, basket with where we sell data and we use our journalism product to feature the data. Now, how did they get the money at the conferences? I've always wondered how, because it well, seems like they gave out magazines at conferences. Was well, it because of the advertising? Well, you would, you would make the money at the conferences from selling, uh, you know, people would go to the conferences, they would go to the cocktail parties, they would meet people in the coffee breaks. And so you would get uh, money from people coming in the doors, and then you would also get money from sp the sponsors of the conference. And then you could also use the conferences as a, it was a very circular system. You could use the conferences to stack up your magazines as well. And, oh, and, 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 and then they would, they would get your magazines and you could put your magazines at other conferences. That was one of the big advantages of a print publication because you yeah. could put this not just at your conference, but at other conferences. And so that's the way it worked. But here I we see. have, yeah. So, so here we have this year. I mean, no yeah. one is going to go to a physical conference. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just not going to happen. Uh, you can't do it. If you think about a physical conference, you have to uh, put a huge deposit down on the venue you have right. to uh, uh, get a lot of people to go to that conference, which means not only do you have to get them to pay, but you have to get them to, if they're out of town, get them agreed to have their businesses cover a non-refundable you know, non airline ticket or an airline right. ticket to go there. It's just not going to happen. So mm -hmm. none of that's happening anymore. So everyone is doing virtual conferences. Uh, and a virtual conference is essentially, you know, uh, you know, it's an online conference and it's very difficult the problem is it's very difficult to get people to pay to attend a virtual conference. Sure. So you so you have to make your money from the sponsors of the virtual conference. Uh, that's one way you could do it. And and actually our company, uh, Freight Waves and American Shipper, is, is a little bit different because we actually own a TV studio. 
Oh. So, so lucky us. Uh, so we're yeah. actually using our own conferences to market our third-party conference product for other people, so they can come to us and do a virtual conference. That's so cool. there's a lot of way to do it, but you know the mm-hmm. what I'm you know the point is is that think about all of these maritime uh, shipping companies out there that were uh, that had switched to a model where they were depending upon people walking in the door to a physical conference and getting that money uh, to support their maritime journalism product. That is a big problem right now uh, because they can't do that anymore. Uh, And so there's a huge, you know, uh, pressure on this business. I'm not saying our company, but I'm saying in general uh, for, because they used, they they had a a belief of how they were going to do business. And suddenly, uh, <laughs> you know, they can't do it anymore. Um, and huge, so it, it, it's, a, it's a huge challenge. And, uh, you know, I'd also like to talk about, uh, you know, how the, the online business itself is changing. Uh, yeah, because please. We had, we had online journalism, maritime journalism before. And again, as I said before, what's happening with COVID is it's accelerating the changes that were already underway. So, okay, you think uh, you think magazines aren't going to work anymore. You think you think uh, newspapers aren't going to work for. So you focus. Okay, so let's do a magazine, right? I'm sorry, let's do a website. So right. you think website's the answer, and and surprise, surprise, things are changing there too. The website is itself being becoming archaic, just like the magazine. Things are changing that quickly. We look at all of our traffic, where it's coming from, and you think, okay, where, where does most of your traffic come from? Uh, you think, okay, people go to the website, they look along the website and they say, okay, that's an interesting story, I'll go here. It's not that way anymore. Uh, most of the stories are coming from people on search, which is Google, yeah. uh, or it's coming from social, which is like Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, right. or it's coming from newsletter links. And so, uh, it's really the people aren't com- aren't coming to the stories from the website. They're coming from the, from online. So the website itself is not the, is not becoming the destination anymore. It's moving right. on from that. That's how quickly things are changing. So it's not just that print is is sort of archaic. It's that the website itself is becoming archaic. Uh, so I mean, for example, okay, I have a an iPhone, and there's, you know, a news, uh, news area where you just get headlines. Now, how do journals like yours compete to get your stories there? Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, as a writer, this is interesting because you actually have to write your story in a certain way uh, to, to, to rank highly on Google. So Mm. there'll be a program that says, you know, don't use, uh, passive constructions, use shorter sentences, use, you know, it'll say, you, you know, these crossheads or these subheads that break up the paragraph. So it's an easier read. Uh, so, you know, I find myself having to write stories in a different way uh, wow. just so that I can compete here. And here's another, another funny thing, which I find strange because I don't do this, but it turns out that the majority of our readers are reading our stories on phones. Um, I, st- you know, <laughs> I know. Isn't that amazing? Uh, it is amazing. But I find myself, and I'm pretty old school, but I find myself, this is with me everywhere, this iPhone. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's with me everywhere. So, because, you know, I have a business. So, 
It's amazing. Oh, and then here's another yeah. thing about the phones is that I have people giving me photographs of themselves to use in stories. And you know, they're, they're sort of portrait photographs where they're tall and narrow, if you can imagine it, with a person standing there. And these work perfectly in a magazine. You could crop them off to one side uh -huh. and, and, and scroll, you know, have the, 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 the print go around the side. Right. But think about it on an iPhone. You can't yeah. have a photo like that uh -huh. because the, the print, the print would, the, the, the text would be broken up. And you'd have to scroll all the way down this guy's photograph. So we, I actually have to go and tell people I, I can't take these photos anymore. I need something, uh, sh you know, short and squat so that it works on a phone. So this is oh, the way wow. things are changing. Uh, Do you think uh, in journalism schools, they're teaching how to write for, you know, I think things are moving Google and all that stuff now. <laughs> I don't think so. Not yet. I think things are moving so quickly. And, yeah. uh, and I think that, you know, this is all interesting, but from the point of view of the import export businesses, yeah. I, I think it really comes down to this is that, uh, you know, as we said before, this is a time more important than ever that you need quality journalism and you mm -hmm. need uh, quality journalists and what I'm saying here about the changes in the models uh, is that it's not just, and you hear this all the time, that journalism is under threat. Uh, it was under threat before COVID. It's under even more threat now because the companies can't afford uh, to pay the, the writers that they need. So, you know, I think that the, the threat is to the quality of journalism and maritime journalism because a lot of the companies in my business again, uh, not my own, but are, 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 I think are going to be under threat over the coming years here if they don't have a sustainable model. And I think this is something to worry about. If, if, if you're in a business, in the shipping business, and uh, you know, the people that with the knowledge to, to cover that business uh, can't be paid. You know, I had, as an editor, looking out to try to get writers to write about yeah. this subject this to go back to what that analyst said about you know it's just shipping it's it's, it's complicated right you know that it's and, very complicated and so i can't just get a writer off the street who doesn't know anything right. about shipping to say oh do you want to cover the trans-pacific market I mean, right <laughs> and well i mean the thing is the business of of shipping the shipping business is and as we said an integral part of the economy of the global economy and when something like a pandemic happens, it really affects everything and people need to have good, uh, really well-researched information to understand what's happening. I mean, it affects eco economics, politics, you know, what clothes you can get. I mean, it affects everything. And yes, you have to have experienced writers and, and journalists who are get know where to go to get that information. I completely agree with you. And I'm completely concerned about that. Not just your journalism, the type of journalism you do, but just the whole business of journalism. We're looking at a future here where, okay, you can, you can, you know, people in the shipping business can go on the internet and get, you know, obviously get a lot of information for free. Yeah. Although that's going to be very self-serving PR exactly. uh, from companies that are just talking their own book. And then uh, the other option is you're going to get, you know, quality journalism behind a paywall, or you can, you're going to get quality journalism from journalism that doesn't have a paywall like ours. That's, that's, that's free to the readers, 
where uh, the justification, uh, it, you know, is essentially we are featuring uh, data. And so we're not only supporting ourselves with online sales, but we're supporting ourselves by featuring uh, another revenue stream. And the interesting so is question, paywall, yeah. I'm sorry, I, yeah. just I want to be sure I understand because I'm not as knowledgeable. The paywall is where you have behind the paywall is the data that you no, I'm saying, I'm saying, you know, a, a, you know, publication, even the New York Times, you can't just go to the New York Times and get it for free. So right. there'll be maritime publications uh, that have a paywall. And so, so you're oh, not right. going to be able to get that article unless you pay, you know, whatever it is, $500 right. a year. Yeah, it's a subscription, you. which is fine. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the interesting question will be is, is there going to be somebody out there that doesn't have a paywall? that's gonna have a model that's sustainable that allows them to attract the kind of journalists that can provide quality journalism and compete with the paywall people. So that's where the, the real battle of the future is gonna come out. Um, Do journalists need to be able to travel to places to get the information or can you do it all from your office now? I mean, how important I is travel to journalism? Travel is very important, travel is very important. Um, you know, I. There, you know, in my various roles through the years, I've dealt with, you know, different, you know, diff people in different countries. And I've noticed a different openness to talking with journalists, whether as, a, you know, if you're calling them on the phone uh, versus uh, if you're meeting them face to face. For example, I, one of the, the areas that I've covered through the years is the the Caribbean shipping community. So, mm -hmm. you know, this is a lot of uh, goods that come through the Panama Canal and they go to the hubs. Uh, yeah. the transshipment hubs in the Caribbean basin, and then they come up uh, to North America or South America. And the, the people in those cultures uh, are, are, are very into meeting you face to face. And once they know you, they know you, uh, they'll take their call and they're very good sources. But if I was to call them from my office here in New York, they, they, they probably wouldn't. Whereas in the United States, uh, people are more open to uh, talking to people on the phone, but you're right. It is, it's an interesting question. Uh, you know, how are people going to do the same jobs without traveling? Something I've wondered about, say publications want to hire freelance journalists. How, who pays for a freelance journalist to travel? How does, how does that work? Does, do they have to just absorb the cost, the journalist, and figure out a way to recoup that? I, I know that's just a business question, but I've always been curious because there's a lot of freelance journalists running around out there. Yeah, no, that's an interesting question. Um, and and, and even, even more interesting now with COVID, I mean, because we're going to have these travel restrictions. I mean, to be honest, when I use freelancers around the world, the, the way I did it uh, is, you know, if there was someone in South America who spoke the language, I, I would hire them down there so they could deal with the business community down there. It goes right back to what I was just saying about that personal contact. So yeah. uh, one, way, one, one way around the lack of travel maybe now is that we could uh, hire uh, you know, uh, freelancers in, mm -hmm. in, uh, in different countries. Uh, but, uh, but I, I, you know, I tell you, uh, that the importance of, uh, the importance of shipping journalism, uh, has been really underscored by what's happened here, uh, with COVID and shipping. Yes. And I'd like to talk, you know, I'd get to what, what has really happened this year. And there's been Please. some incredible surprises. Yes. In, in the market. And uh, this just goes to underscore the importance of the information out there. I mean, first off, think about, uh, if you think about the oil sector, right? Um, yeah. Remember 
the lockdowns, demand collapsed, the price of oil collapsed, your first reaction would be, this would be terrible for the tanker market because there's less demand for oil, therefore tanker rates uh, uh, would go down. What happened uh, was Saudi, and Saudi Arabia and Russia got into a fight with each other about uh, cutting production because of the price cuts. Right. And so if you remember instead, they both started pumping oil like crazy. And so what happened is there was too much crude produced there was not, an not enough storage tanks on land to put it. So they had to fill all these tankers. So all these tankers started to fill up around the world. They all got tied up in storage. So when you have all the tankers tied up in storage, there's not enough to bid on contracts to go from point A to B. And the rates actually went up to $200,000 a day at one point. So amazing, a time when consumer demand for oil collapsed and tanker owners were making a fortune. Um, uh, and to move on to the container sector, yeah. uh, which is, you know, the sector we're talking about, think about what's happening right now in the container, in the container market. The container rates on the Trans-Pacific are at record levels. Uh, who would have thought that in the middle of the pandemic, with all of this economic crisis, uh, that, that we would have a situation where the rates were as high as they are. So it's yet another situation where you would have thought that the rates would have collapsed, but instead they haven't. And, uh, you know, who knows what's going to happen with that? I mean, there are a lot of theories, but it looks like the importers in the United States are pulling a lot of volume forward. They're filling their inventories. Right. To go back to what we said before about the Amazonification and the online sales, all right. of the, all these companies out there, they're saying, okay, well, our stores are closed. We're not doing good with the stores. So we're going to import a lot of goods. We're going to put it in warehouses and we're going to sell it online. And so they're, everything is coming in now, all of it, of course, from China. Uh, right. So, right. That, you know, uh, laugh, laughs on us or laughs on them. Incredible uh, surprise. You know. Now there were, you know, there are people that are paid to predict the future in these industries. There's no way they could have, well, they, they should have known in, what was it, November, December, when it, COVID hit Wuhan. But still, how, I just wonder about how that speculation turned out to be correct or totally off or, and how companies insured themselves against this kind of pandemic. Probably, they probably couldn't. Yeah, well, they didn't. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that we've learned about this is that, you know, everyone everyone knew about the threat of a pandemic. Uh, I mean, we've had we've had uh, we've had movies about pandemics. There's, this right. is nothing. This is not like aliens landing on the planet. I mean, this is a <laughs> this is a realistic threat. Right. And and everyone essentially so chose to self insure, which means they didn't insure. Right. Uh, they they just go. They went about their business and said, okay. We're going to hope that this doesn't happen, uh, you know, at least in our lifetimes or when we're on the job. Uh, and unfortunately, it happened. But it just goes to show, uh, you know, as a journalist, one of the most important things, I mean, if I could think back on all the lessons that, that you know, that have come through, uh, it, and, and I guess this applies just to a business person as well, but you have to, you have to avoid your sort of prejudices about what you think is going to happen next and you have to keep an open mind 
you know, in journalism, you, there's, a, there's a tendency to sort of gear your coverage towards where you think it's going to happen, what, what you think is going to happen. And, uh, and you can't do that. You just have to keep an open mind because Absolutely. as we've seen, it's completely unpredictable. Yeah, I think we need to, I think we're all realizing now that we are vulnerable. We don't have control over everything on this planet. And, and there are unpredictable events, you know, no matter how sophisticated and smart we are. Uh, it's, I hope we've all learned that lesson. You know what, I have a couple of questions for you about the industry because you are so tapped into it. What about faster ships? Is that something that's still important to the industry? You know, fast not, ships? And no, not really. Uh, faster ships would require, you, you're, the price that you pay for fuel rises exponentially with the speed of the ship. So you, uh, the faster you go, the more you spend on fuel. Uh, right. Okay, granted the price of fuel has come down now, but that's not something they're going to want to do. Also, what happened is they built too many ships over the last 10 years. Right. So they have uh, what they've, they've essentially had to slow steam or slow the ships down and not use those ships efficiently as they could have, uh, it, you know, in order to soak up all the ships that they built. So they're already, right. they're already, they're slow steaming. They're already going slow mm -hmm. intentionally to use the ships. Um, you know, they could, they could go faster to, to, uh, instead of building new ships, they could always just go faster to yeah. use the ships they have better. But the idea of the old days, the fast ships, uh, the ones that can go across the Atlantic very fast, I don't think uh, that's something that anyone is thinking about because you're okay. too exposed to the price of uh, the fuel. Okay. Okay. Well, where is the innovation going to come from, do you think, in the shipping business? If any. I mean, is well, it old-fashioned or is there going to be innovation some some way. Well, I mean, the innovation is going to be on the technology side. Uh, there's so much technology that can be used to make the supply chain more efficient. Uh, it's not operating as efficiently as it can be in terms of the visibility of where the containers are. And so there's a lot of uh, uh, savings uh, that, that are still to be made uh, from, from the technology point of view. And secondly, I would say is in terms of shipping and the kinds of ships that are going to be used, that's going to depend upon uh, regulation. There's a there's a huge push, uh, decarbonization, and uh, you know the jury's still out on how quickly that's going to happen. But you know I think that the shipping industry is going to be have to be pushed by regulators uh, and forced uh, to make the changes uh, to decarbonize because it's going to cost a lot of money, and the question is who's going to pay for that. So that's not coming from the market. The, the no, well, no, not really. Uh, it, you know, it, it's going to have to come from the regulators. It's going to have yeah. to come from the governments. Oh, great. <laughs> I, think, I won't I think, hold my breath. <laughs> I, I, you know, you talk about my, talk about my career. I don't know if I'll be in the, you know, that's a long, that could be past the time I'm retired. Yeah. I mean, we're, you know, we're, exactly. we're talking 2050 here, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I won't hold my breath. Anyway. <laughs> well, Greg, this has been the most fascinating discussion. Uh, we could probably go on and on, but yeah, you yeah. are so kind to uh, join us today and, and uh, we covered a lot. Yeah. Uh, I just want to say uh, quickly to our listeners that we'd love to keep this conversation going about this episode and, 
any other general discussions about exporting, please reach out to me on exportstoriespodcast.com and post questions uh, or comments on the episode page. We're also on Facebook and Twitter. So anyway, we're creating a community of exporters and uh, we really want to, you know, keep the conversation going. But uh, so anyway, Greg, thank you again for being here today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was great. All right. And thanks to all our listeners. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for listening to Export Stories. Perhaps you have a good export story that you would like to share with us or a comment about today's podcast. You can send your ideas and comments to our website at exportstoriespodcast.com or to Betsy Olam on LinkedIn. Subscribe to our newsletter at exportstoriespodcast.com so we can alert you of upcoming episodes and share resources with you. We're building a community of export storytellers, so please share this podcast with your friends who have interest in exporting. 